prepare your, your hearts for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture passage is from Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 24. When Ahab, when, excuse me, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And then the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see Sean. Just awkward housekeeping note. I just took your stand because I forgot mine, but when we do the communion prayer, you can take it back. I know that's just awkward, but yeah, we got to make that transition work. Sorry about that. Uh, you know, you think you have everything in place, right? It's the party at your house, and then the last, where did that go? Um, well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Tyler, uh, one of the pastors here. It is great to see you this morning at Christ Communities downtown uh, campus. Not sure if you noticed this past week, but summer is upon us. Uh, it is here. The humidity is back. The heat is real. And one of my favorite summer activities uh, year after year is uh, summer reading. Join <laughs> it, right? Be surprised. I'm a nerd. Uh, but this year, like many years, I've created a summer reading list. And I'm going to be honest, church, I probably don't read uh, the fun summer reading books. I'm sure when you hear the kind of books I love, you'll think uh, this is pretty boring because I'm not into page-turning novels. I don't read New York Times bestsellers. I read essay collections. Um, essay collections by choice. I buy them, and I really, really enjoy them. And one of my favorite essayists is this middle-aged New Yorker named Tim Kreider. And a few years ago, he released a book called We Learn Nothing. And the book contains an essay that I think is absolutely his best. It's an essay from 2009, and it's called The Referendum. And in it, Kreider writes about this phenomenon that he insists happens whenever we run into an old friend, maybe a childhood friend, someone we grew up with. And he says, when this kind of run-in occurs, it's not long before each person starts sharing details of how life has turned out, right? Whether it's a, you know, a marriage entered or some children raised or a promotion earned or a big vacation taken, right? So he says, you run into this old friend, you start talking about life, and then in our minds, we all enter into kind of a mental comparison game. And I'll let him explain what happens next. Kreider says, this phenomenon, it's typical of but not limited to midlife, whereby people increasingly aware of the finiteness of their time in the world, so I've only got a little bit of time here, and the limitations placed on them by their choices so far, and the narrowing options remaining to them, right? 
they start judging their peers' differing choices with reactions ranging from envy to contempt. We see what other folks have done, and we either think, hey, that looks really, really good, or, oh, man, I hate that they were able to do it. In fact, Kreider, he says this happens because when we're growing up, we're all kind of basically the same. We don't have many choices. We're limited by where we're from, what our parents' home is like. But as time goes on, our lives begin to take unique trajectories. We can make our own decisions, right? We can be where we want to be. We walk further down our unique paths. And as that happens, as we make our way further down roads shaped by our own decisions, other options become unavailable to us. By saying yes to certain relationships, we're saying no to others. By saying yes to this city or this role, we're saying no to those cities and those roles. And so we find ourselves, he says, with a narrower and narrower pool of options as our identity solidifies. And then we stumble across someone we knew way back when. Then we stumble across someone from our hometown. We interact with those people, and it's natural for us to think about, hey, how did I turn out? How did they turn out? And we wonder, did I make the right choice? Am I headed in the right direction, or at least a better direction than those who started in a similar circumstance and had a similar upbringing? Commenting on this phenomenon, he writes, we all size up how everyone else's decisions have worked out to reassure ourselves that our own are vindicated and that we are, in some sense, winning. I think this means we don't want to feel deep down like we've messed things up. We don't want to feel like we've made choices that are too small or too narrow or too foolish, like we didn't take this precious opportunity called life and squander it. We want to be convinced that we've made the right calls and that what has turned out for us is indeed the best. Does this kind of feeling, does these concerns, they sound familiar, church? I mean, I think they should. This deep-seated human habit, it fuels so many decisions and behaviors that we see again and again. This combination of kind of insecurity and pride. Did I make the right choice? I think I did. I want to say that I'm better. And this impulse to take radical action if we suspect we did not make the right choice. I think it's what motivates so many midlife crises or quarter-life crises or purchases of motorcycles, uh, or credit card debt. It's why millennials like to keep our options open. It's why we'll say we're interested in a Facebook event instead of saying whether we're going or not going. We need to be prepared if a better option comes along. It's why we might suddenly quit our jobs or purchase gym memberships we have no business using. We want to prove to ourselves that we're making the right choices, that we're living in the best way. It's a human need, and I'd like to suggest that it's the need that motivates the actions we observe in this morning's passage. This human gut-level impulse to evaluate how we're measuring up to those around us and then to convince ourselves that what we're doing is right, it fuels so much of what we do. And I believe it motivated the Israelites to embrace gods and embrace practices that violated their conscience and disregarded their historic religious customs. They compared themselves to those around them. Hey, did we make the right choices or not? And then took radical action that caused them to disregard everything they knew and everything they had been taught. And so this morning, as we move forward in our sermon series called With Us, this series that takes an in-depth exploration of the history of God's people, Israel, during a period of great turbulence, I think we're going to see that the Israelites are a whole lot like us and that we are a whole lot like the Israelites. So we're in this series with us, and already we've learned that Israel uh, has come to live under an evil king, King Ahab, who has prompted them to turn from their national heritage to reject their faith in their God. And for the past few weeks, 
We've watched as God, through the prophet Elijah, has tried to woo and win his people back. We've seen God demonstrate his power by stopping the rain. That was our first week in the sermon. We saw last week as God raised a child from the dead, right? These bold demonstrations of power as if to say, hey, come back here. You followed this other God. You've embraced the God of your neighbors, this God, Baal, who sometimes requires child sacrifice and awful forms of worship. Why don't you come back to me, the one true God? And today... We're going to engage a great historic showdown between the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God Baal. We're going to witness a head-to-head contest designed to prove whose God is indeed God. And as we engage this text, I think we need to keep a few truths in mind. We need to remember that, that Israel is a lot like us, and we're a lot like Israel, that like us, they're afraid of missing out. They don't want to be left wanting or left behind. And so for reasons that should be easy for us to understand, they embrace the God of their neighbors, even though the worship of that God is cruel and harsh. They add Baal to their other religious practices, even though Baal demands child sacrifice. And so as we engage this text, we've got to keep that in mind. And my hope is that as we engage their story, we might learn just as they did that the God of the Bible, their God of the forefathers, the God who told them that he alone is God, that he actually is, and that he's a good God and a powerful God, a God worthy of our trust and worship. And so uh, if you aren't there already, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's on page 299 of our community Bibles. And since we're covering a whole chapter this morning, I'm going to do a little bit of summary, and then we'll dive into verses in depth, and then some summary and a little more in depth. And so let me kind of catch you up to where we've been. Last week, we ended our time together with Elijah, the prophet, the hero of this story, in Zarephath. Right? This is kind of Jezebel's home country, we said. This is a region where Baal is worshipped. He's been staying at the house of a widow, and he, he's there, and the, God kind of miraculously provides uh, more oil for them, more food, and then, and then allows for the widow's son to be raised after he dies. So that's where we ended chapter 17. Now as chapter 18 is beginning, we see in verse 1 that uh, many days have passed. Some time has gone by, and now Elijah who had decreed that it would not rain in the land until God gave the word. Now God comes and gives his prophet another message. God says, hey, Elijah, you remember that whole, that whole drought thing? Well, it's happened. I showed up. There hasn't been any rain in the area, but now I'm ready to make an even bigger statement. Right? Now I'm ready to give another word to my people. So I need you to go and present yourself to King Ahab. I need you to go meet with Israel's evil king. And when you're together, I'm going to display my power. I'm going to send rain again to the surface of the earth. And so Elijah, he packs his bags and he goes to meet Ahab. Well, while this is happening up inside and to the north, something else is happening down in Samaria to the south. That's where Ahab is. And he's saying, man, the drought is bad here. There is no water. We've got no food. And so he calls this guy Obadiah to him. And Obadiah is a palace official who works for Ahab, who remained faithful to the God of Israel, even as Ahab was saying we should worship these other gods. And so Ahab, he calls Obadiah to the throne room and he says, hey, Samaria is finished. Uh, There's no food here. There's no water here. If we stay here, we're going to die. We have got to find some water. Let's split up. I'm going to go this way. You go that way. Let's see if we can find some vegetation, some kind of little pond somewhere that we can feed the cattle, feed the horses, get some water ourselves. We got to split up so that we can survive. So Obadiah does as the king instructed. He kind of starts a journey, and Ahab's on a journey, and Elijah's on a journey, and Obadiah and Elijah happen to meet. 
And Obadiah recognizes Elijah. And Elijah says to Obadiah, hey, tell the king that I want to meet with him. And Obadiah, he's filled with fear. He says, dude, you're like the most wanted man in the area. You're the guy who stopped the rain. You're the reason we're all hungry. If you meet with Ahab, Ahab, if I bring you to him, Ahab's going to kill me. He's going to kill you. I, I can't set up this meeting. But Elijah replies, hey, hey, I'm committed to see Ahab. See, Obadiah was nervous that if he set up this meeting, Elijah would bail because he got nervous. And then he'd be on the hook. And Elijah's like, no, 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 I'm serious. I'm going to meet with the king. God's told me something else is going to happen. There's kind of this big action on the horizon. And so Obadiah sets up the meeting, and Elijah and Ahab meet. And this takes us to verse 17. Ahab sees Elijah, and as Elijah comes towards him, he says, Hey, is that you? Are you the one who's troubling Israel? Another translation puts it this way. Hey, is that you, Elijah? Are you the one who's ruining Israel? The idea is this. Ahab is blaming Elijah for the problems of the region. Is it you, Elijah? Are you the one who's declared this drought? You've brought devastation to your own land. And Elijah responds to him saying, hey, look, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Ahab, it's not you, or it's not me, it's you. It's not you, it's me. We've all heard that. It's not me, Ahab, it's you. It's you. You're the one who's abandoned the gods. You're the one who's turned away. I didn't cause this devastation. You did. You abandoned the Lord. You embraced the worship of the Baals. You led Israel to take up temple prostitution and child sacrifice, dehumanizing and objectifying forms of worship. You're the one who's ruined things for our people. And then Elijah kind of sets a date for a showdown. So they're saying, it's you, and Elijah's saying, it's you, it's you, it's you. Whose fault is this? Elijah says, hey, we're going to settle it. Here's what I want you to do, Ahab. Let's gather all Israel to meet at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, these people who sit at your wife's table, who she loves, why don't you bring them to, and we're going to settle this once and for all at Mount Carmel. Elijah says, it is, it is time. So spread the word. It's going down. I'll be there. And you make sure that everyone in Israel comes. And so verse 20, Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And the big day arrives. And I imagine it's a lot like a college game day, right? I think there's penance out. I think there's anticipation in the air. Everyone is gathered. The Israelites have showed up and they're tailgating. Uh, the prophets of Baal and Asherah are there. They're stretching. Ahab and Jezebel have got VIP box seats. And Elijah shows up. And he says to the people this important statement, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And friends, I think this is the first vital lesson from this morning's text. This is the first thing Elijah wanted the people of Israel to know when it was time for the big showdown. And I think it's the first thing he wants us to know this morning. We need to tune into this fundamental truth. When it comes to worship, human attention cannot be divided. I mean, when it comes to worship, it's impossible to have split opinions. Worship is something that's supposed to be all-encompassing and total. It's not something that you kind of dive in here one day and, and maybe there the next. There's some kind of commitment. There's some kind of dedication. There's a selection of an object of worship, and then there is just total dedication to it. 
And so Elijah, he calls all the people together and he says, hey, how long are you going to keep living in this fantasy world? How long are you going to keep pretending like you can kind of split allegiance a little bit to your God one day and a little bit to Baal the other day? How long are you going to try to convince yourselves that you can have a little bit of God and a little bit of Baal on the side or a little bit of Baal and a little bit of God on the side? You've got to make a decision, he says. You've got to make a choice. Hey, if the Lord is God, follow him. And go, go all in there. And if Baal is God, follow him. But quit lying to yourselves. Quit, quit pretending like you can have a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. That's just not the way it works. And friends, in our culture today that is obsessed with options, in our unique period in human history where we have more ability than any human generation before us to select what we'd like and straddle the fence and remain undecided and kind of pick one thing one day and pick something else the next, I think we need to hear this message. We need to be reminded that when it comes to ultimate things, when it comes to the most meaningful things, when it comes to what matters most, there are decisions that need to be made. When it comes to what we're going to worship, we have to decide because when we don't, when we kind of vacillate and waver, when we go back and forth, we're fooling ourselves. When we tell ourselves that we can worship many things or worship this thing one day and this other thing the next, we in fact wind up worshiping nothing at all. Because to worship is to say, this matters most. I mean, to worship something is to say that this matters above all else. This is what's truly important. And church, you can only really say that about one thing or one person or one idea. I mean, that, that's just the way it works because a time will come when conflict will arise. When one of the gods you've chosen might conflict with another god you've chosen. When one belief or one mantra will come into conflict with another. And in those moments, compromise is just, it's, it's impossible. And we kind of, we know this on some level. I think we feel this tension in our lives. When it comes to worship, we're saying this is most ultimate and only one thing can possess that role in our lives. But so often we try to deny that fact. So often, like the Israelites, we try to deny that reality. We want to keep our options open. We want to keep ourselves immune from being disappointed or criticized or feeling like when we're measuring up to those around us, like we've made the wrong choice or the bad choice. And so we say, hey, I'm going to worship this and this and this and this and this. I'm going to keep all my bases covered. But that means, church, that we wind up worshiping really nothing at all. We never give any idea or any person or any belief or any God the honor and respect that they would be due should they actually be God. And as a result, we wind up living smaller lives of compromise and inconsistency. We lead lives that are fear-filled and timid, not faith-filled and resilient. And this isn't just some modern anxiety. This is what's fueling the Israelites in this moment. They're trying to mix gods and goals. This isn't anything new. It's a human reality, and Elijah knows it. And so he calls all Israel together, and he asks, how long are you going to keep wavering? If it's God, worship God. If it's Baal, worship Baal. How long are you going to keep pretending like you can have it both ways, like they can live side by side? You've got to choose. And the people, they know that Elijah's got them. You see it at the end of verse 21. The text says, and the people didn't answer him a word. I mean, I love that. Have you ever been caught? I mean, this is my reaction. 
like, oh, Elijah, you got us. The people, they, they didn't answer him a word. And so then he says, well, here's what's going to happen. The prophets of Baal, they're going to get a bull and I'm going to get a bull. And we're going to butcher our animals, get them all cut up into nice stanks and flakes and roasts. And then we're going to place these pieces on separate piles of wood. And then each of us are going to summon our respective gods. The prophets of Baal, they're going to reach out to Baal. I'm going to reach out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to see which God can start a fire, right? Which God can make a pot roast? Which God can show up and show off their ability to actually come through on behalf of a prayer? And so the people say, hey, that sounds good to us. And Elijah, being the gentleman, says to the prophets of Baal, hey, I'm going to let you go first. And so they took their bowl and they prepared it. And the text says they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there's no sound. No one answered. And so they started, I love this, they limped around the altar they made. They limped. I mean, I was out dancing with some folks this weekend. You know, you start the dance party with a lot of energy, but as it goes on, you're just a little limping around. Three hours, they've been going at it. They've been trying to summon their God, and now they're just exhausted. They're limping around that altar that they've made. Nothing's happening, and Elijah senses an opportunity. He's got a chance to say something, and Elijah, uh, he decides it's time for a little trash talk. Now, here's what you got to know, church. Much like Elijah, uh, I love trash talk. <laughs> In fact, uh, earlier this week, I was at a 4th of July gathering, some of you know where this is going, with some folks in this congregation. And during our time together, uh, we played a game of USA trivia, American trivia. We answered 20-some questions rooted in American history uh, that were about U.S. civics, current demographic data. And as our game unfolded, I think a few folks in this church uh, got to see a whole different side of me. Because it wasn't long until I uh, started the trash talk. I was confident that our team would crush the opposition uh, because I knew we had a smart crew, right? You get a sense of folks in church. I'm like, we random teams, but I'm like, we have a, a very good chance here. Uh, and because I know you're curious, church, uh, our team did in fact prevail. There are some <laughs> champions even in this room. So uh, Nicole and Levi over here and Mr. Sean back there. I mean, victorious, slaughtered the competition. It uh, really no contest. <laughs> and similarly, in the midst of his context, contest with the prophets of Baal and Asherah, Elijah gets feisty and he starts talking a little trash. And you see it in verse 27. He says, hey, you're tired, right? You're this. Why don't you get a little louder? I don't think he can hear you. Maybe he's busy thinking or out reflecting on his porch. Maybe he's taking a nap, needs some rest. Perhaps he's preoccupied in the bathroom, right? The text, uh, RESV says, relieving himself. That's literally in the Bible, folks. This is where potty humor <laughs> begins. Elijah, he talks trash with the prophets of Baal. And so they respond, what choice do they have? They do, they get louder. And they kind of try to renew their strength. They say, let's march around this with new vigor, right? It's the 11 o'clock rally at the dance party, right? Let's get it one more time. Let's keep going. And so they give it all they've got. They get desperate. And then the text says, man, they even, they start cutting themselves. Because remember, Baal's a cruel God. So they're cutting themselves. They're bleeding now. And they're hoping that this act of desperation is going to somehow catch Baal's attention. And still no answer comes. Baal never shows up. Nothing happens on Baal's altar. So then in verse 30, Elijah, he invites all Israel to come near to him. It's as if he's saying, like, scoot up here. You're about to see something cool. And Elijah gets his altar 
ready. And he goes a step further. He, he digs a trench around it. And then he uh, instructs those around him who are helping him to get four large jugs of water. And let's like douse this altar and let's fill the trench. And so they do it once. And then he says one more time. And they do it a second time. And he says one more. And they do it a third time. So you've got to imagine that everything is it's soaking wet. And this trench around the altar, it becomes more like a, like a moat or something. I mean, everything is wet. And then Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And wouldn't you know it, but in response to this prayer, God shows up. And the text says that the Lord sends fire and it fell and it, it consumed the meat and the wood and the stones and the dust and all the water in the trench evaporates. I mean, nothing is left. This is like total victory. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, oh, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In this head-to-head -head contest, Baal is exposed as a powerless God, an unresponsive idol. He's a God who cannot answer his people. He cannot see. He cannot respond to them. He's, he's powerless. And that is put on display in this showdown. And even as Baal is shown to be worthless, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's demonstrated beyond shadow of a doubt that he is a God who is able, a God who can intervene, a God who is able to consume even wet wood and meat with total holy fire. Baal, Baal is nothing and God is everything. And now as a result of this remarkable display, the people of Israel who had turned their backs, the people of Israel who had embraced the Canaanite gods are now saying, hey, hey the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It, it's a stunning victory. And I think it has something important to say to us today. But before we get there, I think we need to say just a little bit about what happens to the prophets of Baal. Uh, because things don't turn out so good for them. And this kind of story, what happens to them, is something that's problematic for many people who read and engage the Bible. And so look with me, if you will, at verse 40. Just a little, uh, little excursus here, what happens to the prophets of Baal. So after God's great victory, Elijah orders that the prophets of Baal be rounded up and seized. And then Elijah takes them down to the Wadi Kishon, and they are slaughtered there. Now, this is uh, one of a few episodes in the Old Testament that I think rightly troubles modern readers. It can seem uh, unmerciful. It seems cruel. It seems kind of inexcusable to us as we read this today. And I get it. And while we would certainly contend in this church that just like Elijah, we should have confidence in God's power, we would also say that unlike Elijah, we should not slaughter those who stand against us. I mean, we would preach something very much to the contrary. In fact, we would insist that true followers of Jesus today ought rather to lay down their lives for others in the same way that our Savior laid down his life for us. Uh, but still, we have this historical fact. What do we do with the fact that Elijah slaughtered the prophets that he bested? How do we understand this? Well, first, I think we need to recognize that this kind of killing, this wasn't something that's unique to Elijah. I mean, in the ancient world, prophets and religious leaders were tested according to their ability to deliver on the promises and pronouncements that they made. So if a prophet were to show up in your town and say, hey, uh, 
You know, a red lion's going to walk through the town on Saturday, and the red lion never came, and it's Sunday morning. It would not be uncommon for that prophet to be disgraced, dismissed, and yes, at this particular point in human history, killed. Uh, this is not to say that it was right of ancient people to kill prophets like this. Uh, and I think it's even not to say that God condoned such behavior. Indeed, throughout human history, I think that God allows kind of cruel practices uh, that break his heart to continue even as he mercifully withholds judgment. I think we've seen this throughout human history. And to be even more clear, I'm convinced that murder has always been wrong in God's eyes. I think we see this from the very beginning of Scripture. But I also believe that God kind of accommodates his infinite glory and wisdom and love to a level at which we can understand it at the time in history in which we live. And put more simply, our God is an accommodating God. We see this, I mean, God became human in Jesus Christ. He came to us as one of us. Uh, God chose to speak to us in human language, right? Hebrew and Greek at first, but now in translations we can access around the world. Um, and I'd argue that God here, he works through some cruel and merciless practices of the ancient world, even though one day he knew that those kind of practices would rightly come to an end. Does that make sense? This idea of killing a prophet when they're wrong. We're not supposed to do that today, but at this time, that's what you did when a prophet proved that they were, when it was proved that a prophet was espousing a false god. And so today, there are people that similarly espouse other false gods, not to kill them now, but I think God accommodates to a time and says, hey, at this period in history, this is what you did when a prophet was proven wrong. I know this is a lot. If you'd like to talk more about it, I'd be happy to have a dialogue because we always value open dialogue at Christ Community. I mean, speaking about things that matter matters to us, but I'd like to include the, conclude this little excursus by saying this. We need to be careful about judging those who have come before us too harshly. Because I think the odds are good that in the not-too-distant future, our children's children, children are going to look back at us and say, hey, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they thought that? I mean, what were they doing? And like those that have come before us in those moments, we're going to fall on God's grace. Because I think what all humans at all times have done is just try to do the best they can with what they know of God at the time. And Elijah was doing the best he can with what he had at the time. I mean, God had said in his law that murder is wrong, but he had also said that it's, you know, kind of good for these false prophets to be exposed. And so, I mean, what else can you do? We know now. We know now what happens in Christ. We know that I think God hates murder and would rather be killed himself than for any human to be slaughtered. But at this point in history, this was the right thing to do. And again, I'd like to, if you want to talk more about that, um, I'd be happy to chat with you more about that one-on-one -on -one if you'd like. But more broadly, right, this morning's story, it's Elijah faces off against Ahab. Baal is bested by Israel's God, and the victory is so definitive, so complete, that the people of Israel have no choice but to respond to God's mighty acts of power with awe and praise. But what does that mean for us this morning? What are we to do with this ancient story? Well, first, I think we need to be reminded with what we've seen already, that we cannot worship multiple gods. Because worship works by saying this matters most and all else is secondary, which means you can only really worship one thing or one person. That's just the way it is. I mean, we've got to come to terms with that because too often we try to live like there's kind of a great buffet of choices from which we can choose, but this golden corral style of worship, very much like the golden corral itself, uh, may look appetizing and sound like a great idea, but ultimately destroys you on the inside. 
It's a simple fact, church. You can only worship one thing ultimately. You can only worship one thing fully. If your worship's going to be genuine or meaningful, that's just the way worship works. Only one person, only one value, only one belief can be ultimate in your life. That's what this text teaches us this morning, which means that we need to evaluate what we worship. And we need to evaluate what we worship. We need to decide if that thing or that person or that idea that we've made ultimate really deserves the place that we've given it in our lives. We need to decide if what we've oriented our lives around is truly worthy of being at the center of our existence. We have got to be self-evaluative. And so, you know, we opened our time this morning by recognizing that running into old friends often causes us to reflect on our lives. Uh, and sometimes that reflection can lead us to unhealthy comparison or to do stupid things. But that doesn't mean that self-evaluation is always bad. In fact, to the contrary, it's, it's so often so vital. And if you've been around this community for a while, you know that we love to reflect together every so often. You know, that we love to turn this space into a space where we can honestly look inside and see what's going on in our own hearts and in our minds. Uh, it's likely that you've heard us before speak about different things or different ideas or different people that we find ourselves tempted to turn into ultimate goods, into objects of worship. Uh, we've spoken many times in this church how easy it can be to start to worship money or to worship sex or to worship our children, to worship our work, to worship uh, efficiency, and in so doing, neglect the fact that sometimes loving people is messy or to worship safety. And in so doing, forget that sometimes the work that's most important, uh, it's going to put us at risk, right? We've spoken about the uh, things we can worship. We can worship the opinions of others. We can live our lives through the applause of friends or coworkers. Uh, we can worship ourselves, right? We've, we've talked about that before in this space. But in the time that remains today, I'd like for us to spend a few moments together evaluating what it is that we worship. I mean, what it is that we truly worship, not what we say we worship, what it is that we truly worship. And to do that, I've got just a few questions. A great way for us to think about it might be uh, by looking at it through these lenses. I mean, what do we keep in our calendars no matter what? Right? Where do we spend our money? What gets our best attention and energy? What do we think about in our spare time? I mean, is it work? Is it our family? Is it the weekend, we live for a weekend off. Is it a good financial status, a good credit score? Is it, man, vacation, just that next time I can get away? What is it that we truly worship? What do you truly worship? And I'm going to pause here for just a moment and give us all some space to reflect. Just in the quietness of your hearts, ask that question now. Hey, not what I say I worship. What is it that I truly worship? I think this is a, something good for us to think about even as we leave this place, to maybe reflect, spend some time, ask God to make it clear to you, what is it that I'm really worshiping? And once we get that better sense of what it is that we're worshiping, what it is that we've actually oriented our lives around, I think we need to ask these three questions. Hey, can your God hear you? Can your God answer you? Can your God make you new? Whatever it is that you worship, can that God, can your God, can your God hear you? Can your God answer you? Can your God make you new? Because here's what's true. Baal could not hear his followers. No matter what they did, he, he remained silent. He had no ears. He couldn't respond. And Baal could not answer his followers. 
Right? He couldn't react. He leaves them powerless and exhausted and vulnerable. And, and Baal, he, he couldn't rescue his followers. He couldn't come through on their behalf. He couldn't bring about any kind of transformation in their lives or any good in their lives. He, he couldn't hear them. He couldn't answer them. He couldn't make them new. He's powerless and empty and ultimately worthless as a God. But what about your God? What about what you're truly worshiping? Can your God hear you? Can your God answer you? Can your God make you new? Most importantly, does your God love you? Does your God want what's best for you, or does your God just want you to spend more, or make more, or do more, or be more, or get ready for the next time you can go out, or the, the next adventure? You see, church, at the heart of this morning's story is a head-to-head -head competition between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a God that God's people had selected for themselves. And in this matchup, as I'm convinced is the case in any matchup, Israel's God wins decisively. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will always come in above any other God we can choose. He has more power. He's able to answer. He can hear his people when they call. He wants to show up in their moments of need. He's a good God who loves us. We see even in this text that he loves wayward Israel, even as they follow Baal. He loves them enough to show up and demonstrate his power so that he might draw them back to himself. Do you remember that in verse 21? Church, he loves Israel and he loves us. It's demonstrated in his willingness to die on the cross for us. We can't worship multiple gods. That's just not how it works. So why not worship the God who hears you, right? the God who can answer you, the God that makes us new? Why not worship the God who loves you more than you can imagine? May we have this week the courage to look ruthlessly at what we worship and to choose the God who can hear us answer us, and loves us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Lord, we, uh, we so often choose lesser gods. We are Israel, and we, we feel like we're missing out. We feel like someone else has it better. We feel like we want to have all our bases covered, and so we, we embrace other gods that aren't you. We make decisions to make uh, things that aren't you ultimate, and in the process, Lord, we harm only ourselves. We miss out on a God who loves us and hears us and wants to respond uh, by instead selecting idols that cannot do any of those things that are ultimately powerless. And so, Lord, I ask this week that you would give us good insight into our own lives, helps us to see things that we may have made too ultimate or too important. Let us put things in proper perspective, and Lord, let us uh, have the, the courage and the grace to approach you once again and know that uh, you're a God who welcomes our worship, who always welcomes us home. You're a good God, a faithful God, a powerful God, the one true God. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.